0: let's go to work. Uh, I want to talk about the one who God chooses. And we need to bring you up to speed. We weren't here last week. We saw last week that Samuel, the book of Samuel starts with Samuel who hears the voice of God from being a very young child. And when the enemies of God come in, when the pressure comes in, uh, his, his first instinct is to pray and he trusts in the gospel of a sacrificed lamb. And we talked about how actually, how so often when pressure comes, we can, we can, that's not our first instinct, our first instinct instinct is to to fix it ourselves and do it ourselves. And then we saw how when Samuel was old, that uh, Israel faced the Ammonite king Nahesh, whose name means serpent, and they were, Israelites were worried that the old Samuel, the praying prophet, uh, and the one who trusted in the sacrifice lamb wasn't going to be enough, and they wanted a king, and they said, we want to be a a king to be like other nations, to be strong and fight our battles for us. And so they asked for a king. And obviously, the the king that ultimately God has got in mind is not not the one we're going to talk about today. It's not Saul. It's not David. It's obviously Jesus is the one that uh, God's got in mind who's going to put a king on the throne. But actually, that, that we talked about how the king would rule, was meant to rule under God's word from says, uh, Deuteronomy uh, 17, that they were to write out the book of the law, write out Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Write that out in by hand and meditate on that. That was the only Bible that was around at the time. Meditate that on that day and night. But we saw actually that Israel didn't really want a king that did that. Israel wanted a king that was gonna do the stuff for them, that was gonna fight the battles for them, that rather than rule under God's word and, and be a king under God, it, it, they wanted a king who was gonna be instead of God. And then we saw how they, they asked for a king and this, uh, the king's name, I don't know, Saul. It means they're one that's demanded. So they, Samuel says, no, 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 you need God to be a king, and they say no. We demand a king, give us a king, and interesting, the king Saul, and uh, Saul is a tall, good-looking, handsome, athletic kind of guy, the obvious king candidate, the obvious one who that that you'd think that person would be a king, and we saw that actually Saul, even though he had all the outside appearance of a very successful king, inside he was full of insecurity, born of a low view of himself and a, a... uh, without a high view of God. What we said is actually the aim of the exercise, security doesn't come from a high view of yourself. Thinking, I'm great, I've got it, I can do it, I can make it happen, that's called pride. Security comes from having a sober view of yourself and a high view of God. No, God can do it. He's the one, he's the great one. And that we see that Saul's got a, a, a low view of himself, he's insecure, he struggles with issues, but actually his problem is that he's got he's God he's got, he's got small as well. So sometimes you can meet people and they say, yeah, yeah, I'm, uh, I, I'm not good at this and i not good at that and I'm not good at the other. And they think actually that they have been humble. But if that, they may be actually just being self-focused where they should have been God-focused. Because if you're self-focused, you become defensive, people-pleasing, jealous, impatient, fearful, controlling and basically proud. And that's what we've got with Saul. And so I finished halfway through. We kind of landed it halfway through. I just want to pick up f- three little points about Saul and then we got, we're going to go to David. This is where we're going to go this morning. So I'm going to race through. So basic, Saul's problem, he's got a low view of God. He's, Saul's got no gospel. Saul doubts that God is good, so he's full of fear. When the Philistines come in to kind of give, put pressure on, it says Saul was under the pomegranate tree. Oh, It's again under the tree. We talked about being under the tree, ruling under the tree. Uh, it's a theme that you pick out through the Bible. But Saul's under the tree, and he's, he's passive. He, he's fearful. It says the army were quaking and melting away. And his son, actually, who was, I don't know how old his son was, probably maybe late teens, early 20s, Jonathan, and his armor bearers say, come on, let's go and see what God will do. And they kind of set off, uh, and we haven't time to preach into that. It's, uh, I've preached on it before. But they set off, and they say, maybe God will act on our behalf. Who knows what God will do? And the two of them go up and attack this, ma- this camp of this massive army of the Philistines and then God creates a, a chaos and a turmoil and, and the Philistines run away. And what happens is that then Saul thinks, momentum, I need to get on the back of it and he asks God what am I supposed to do and, he do- and God doesn't answer him. It says in Chronicles, he never ever sought God once in his life. He never ever spoke to God. He's asking, what shall I do? And so he thinks, well, I'll build an altar. I'll build an altar, and that will that will get God on my side. And uh, he tells the people to fast, and he's going to kill his son for eating honey, and it's just a bit of a disaster. And so he's got now gospel. He's, he doesn't realize that actually that, that God's going to be with him. And so <coughs> Saul's view of God means, one writer says, he swaggers in peacetime, yet crumbles in a crisis. We know people like that. Swagger in peacetime, crumble in a crisis. Great in a prayer meeting, Lord, heal the sick, save the lost, advance the church, then they're at work. Head down. Christian, what do you do at the weekend? Watch football. We, We can be like that. And he doesn't, Believe that God is glorious. He doesn't really have this high view of God. So, so actually, what he does is in the panic of all of this, trying to find out God, what you're going to do. Saul, Samuel says to him, "Now you just wait for me. I'm the prophet, the priest. I'm going to do the bring the uh, do the sacrifice." But Saul doesn't doesn't want to wait, and he's he's worried that the army's all melting away, and he's worried what the people are thinking. He's worried about the numbers, and if you're a leader, talk to somebody in the break. Numbers do matter. You know, uh, you think, man, it'd be, be nice to have huge people because you can find your security in the numbers. We find our security in God, but you find the security in the numbers. And the numbers are melting away, and Paul says, uh, uh, Saul says, what am I going to do? And so he does a sacrifice. He's not supposed to do the sacrifice. Saul, Samuel's supposed to do the sacrifice. He does this sacrifice, and it's basically a, cl- a crowd pleaser. It's not about an act of worship saying, God, we trust in your sacrificed lamb. We look forward to Jesus. No, it's this crowd pleaser. Let's just do something that keeps the people happy. His religion is all for someone else. His low reputation means that his gospel is all about enhancing his reputation. He plays church for his own ends. And you know, that, that it's actually the people, it says in uh, one of the gospels, that the people came to make Jesus king. And if the people make you king, who rule? The people rule. Jesus said, I'm not having the people make me king. But the people had made Saul king, they'd chosen Saul as king, and so therefore his eyes were on them. He didn't believe that God had made him king, the people had made him king, so, so he does this sacrifice, he, he's got this idea that he's having to look elsewhere. Instead of saying, God, my, my affirmation's from you, my confidence in you, his affirmation's from the people. He looks elsewhere. Two more gospel things about uh, Paul, that Saul's got no gospel. Saul doubts that God is gracious, so he tries to prove himself by blame-shifting and image management. So when Samuel comes and says, why have you done this sacrifice? Are you supposed to wait for me? It's interesting, as soon as he's done the sacrifice, Samuel turns up. You know, it's almost like God's kind of, sometimes you think, why don't you turn up quicker, God? And you think, well, in the end, I'm just going to do it myself. I'm just going to act myself. I'm just... Forget God, I'm just going to do it myself. And at that moment, God turns up, and you think, why didn't I wait? Why didn't I wait? Why didn't I try and manage it? It's the whole thing about when you're looking for venues as a church, you think, yeah, we'll get that one, get that, one, work it all out. And you think, no, sometimes you've just got to wait for God. And Samuel says, why didn't you wait for me? Why didn't you wait for me? And he said, well, I would have done, but you were really slow coming, so I forced myself to do a burnt offering. And Samuel says this about him, when 1 Samuel 4, 13, He says, but now because you have not waited, because you've sacrificed, but now your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought out out a man after his own heart and appointed him leader of the people. So he's blame shifting. He says, you never came. He's trying to do the sacrifice for the people. He's really, his eyes are on the people, not on God. And Saul doubts that God is great. So he's constantly struggling to control events and people. So, even as the story kind of finishes before we get to chapter, the chapter we're going to be in today, uh, Saul does this mighty battle against the Amalekites, and they catch you, they, it's a great victory, God, the Spirit of God, suddenly gives him victory, and what happens is that, that they pocket in the best stuff. All the, uh, the animals that are supposed to be sacrificed, killed to God, given to God, they're pocketing them. And Saul says, How come you've been coming and pocketing the proceeds of this victory? And he says, no, I haven't. I've been totally obedient to God. And Samuel says, hey, what's all that bleating going on then? The sheep are all kind of in the back. <laughs> you know, and he's just been kind of, and then he says, he says to, um, he says to, uh, to him, well, okay, fine. Uh, I know I've sinned. I was afraid of the people. I know I've sinned. Um, but now would you, he said, this classic, the kind of last thing that Samuel does for him, he says, now Samuel, would you just come with me? As I go down with the people, so the people are going to still love me. It's classic, isn't it? It's like, he knows he's a sinner, he knows he's messed up, but he's more bothered about his image. And we can be like that. We can be like Saul, that actually, instead of when we think, God, I need to repent. Sometimes there's a call to come forward, or in your three, a chance to take your mask off and be real, and in community, be honest, and we say, oh, no. And we just, we're really in our hearts saying, God, don't expose me. I'd rather keep my sin and keep my image than deal with my sin and lose face. And he says, I've sinned, but honor me now before the elders of my people, before Israel. Come back and worship me. And Saul just, Samuel says, it's done. God says, I regret I made Saul king at all. He's turned away from me and not walked away from me. But Saul's really there to show you what it's like if the person's like looks great on the outside, but in the in, on the inside they're not full of God. That there's got no gospel. So, that's it. We race through that. Okay, let's pick up the story. It's 1 Samuel 16. I'm going to read uh, and then we'll pray and then we'll make some points about this perhaps familiar story. The Lord said to Samuel, how long are you going to mourn for Saul? Samuel feels bad. He's thinking, oh man, God's rejected him. I wish I'd never anointed him. God's rejected him. He's, at, he's mourning. Oh, just just a stupid mistake. He says, come on, how long are you going to mourn for Saul since I've rejected him as king over Israel? Fill the, your horn with oil and be on your way. I'm sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I have chosen one of his sons to be king. I think it's 15 years between... Chapter 15 and chapter 16. Fifteen years, Saul, uh, Samuel saying, God, when are you going to do something? But Samuel said, how can I go? If Saul hears about it, so obviously there's no vacancy for a king. How, uh, if Saul hears about it, he will kill me. The Lord said, take a heifer, take a cow with you, and say, I have come to sacrifice the Lord. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice and he'll show you what to do. You are to anoint the one I indicate. Interestingly, the people chose last time. God's definitely choosing this time. You're going to do the one I choose. Samuel did what the Lord said. When he arrived at Bethlehem, the elders of the town trembled when they meet him. It's really interesting, isn't it? You, um, if somebody kind of spiritual kind of comes, or somebody with authority, or if you're at work and your boss says, "Could you just come and come and see me in the office?" Your immediate reaction is, "What have I done?" <laughs> I think they're the same. Samuel's coming. What have we done? Man, I'm in trouble. <laughs> so yes, they think, "Man, I'm in trouble." When you arrived at Bethlehem, the elders of the town trembled when they met him. They asked him, Do you come in peace? Samuel replied, Yes, in peace, in shalom. I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Now consecrate yourself and come and sacrifice with me. They consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to sacrifice. When they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed stands here. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look on the things that people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadad and made him pass in front of Samuel. But Samuel said, the Lord's not chosen this one either. Then Samuel then Jesse made Shammah pass by, but saw Samuel said, no, the Lord's not chosen this one. Jesse made All of his seven sons passed before Samuel, but Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen any of these. So he asked Jesse, are these all the sons you've got? They're still the youngest. Jesse answered, he's tending the sheep. Samuel said, send for him, we'll not sit down till he arrives. So he sent for him and they brought him in. He was glowing with health and fine appearance and handsome features. So he's a good looking boy. And the Lord said, rise and anoint him, and pour the oil on him. This is the one. So Samuel took the horn of oil, and anointed him in presence of his brothers, and from that day, the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully on David. Lord Jesus, we just pray for, as we walk through this story about who you choose, I pray that we wouldn't in any way be Saul type people. Concerned with appearance, concerned with what other people say, Low view of you. I pray that we'd be like David. How you chose him and crafted him and put passion inside him, Lord. I pray, make us like that. Make us a David people this morning. Okay. So as I said, it's probably fifteen years uh, that that Samuel's been feeling sorry, and his prayer is a bit like the prayer we all pray. It's you know, where is the one who's after your likeness? Where is the one with a worshipper's heart who desires intimacy with Yahweh God? Where is the one who pursues the glory and fame of Yahweh God? And it's interesting, we always feel that. Israel felt that before Jesus came, but they didn't realize. We always feel that. We are saying, where is the one? Where's and, we, and there's a constant search in the heart of God. Even Revelation finishes with Maranatha, calm, calm Lord Jesus. There's a sense where we're, st- we're always looking. But actually, God's always looking the same questions for us. Where is the one in here? God first. Where's the one whose heart after your likeness? Where's the one with a worshipper's heart who desires intimacy with God? Where's the one whose heart pursues the glory and fame of Yahweh? So it says, fill your horn and send you to Jesse. I've chosen one of his sons to become king. It feels like that God's telling Samuel to lie because what he says is, I can't go. This is really scary. I can't go to uh, to uh, Jesse be, uh, to Bethlehem and anoint another king because there's no vacancy. Saul's going to get me and kill me. Now, and, and, and God says, oh, "Okay, take a sacrifice." And it sounds like God sort of sets him up to, to tell a lie, doesn't it? Oh, don't say what you're really about. Come and do this sacrifice. It's not what—that's not what God's doing. I think He's saying to Samuel, "Where do your priorities lie? Where do your priorities lie?" Because actually. If if our priorities lie in well, we're just going to be—it's going to be scary, or I might get killed. Then the reality is we've not got true priorities, and I'm not going out there and getting killed and martyred by whatever. But actually, the reality is it is asking Samuel what what, what's really important to you. Is 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 what Saul thinks, or is coming to worship really important to you? Is obedience really important to you? What's really important to you? And one of the things that, as I reflected on this passage, is people die for the gospel. Every day. In other countries. In, in, in the Sahelian belt, southern Africa, Sudan, Christians die all the time. People are killed in China. in prison, They die in prison. People disappear. Christians die all the time. they die, what, for the right? To worship God. If you read about persecuted church in China, they die for the right to worship God. They die for the right to be in God's, to be with God's people. They die for that right. And I think, man, we take it so complacently, don't we? Yeah, I'll pop along. Yeah, maybe. But actually, so Samuel's, God's asking Samuel, what are you practicing? Are you scared of the king? Or is he coming and sacrificing and worshipping and being in my presence? What's really important to you? He arrives... Jesse brings the first son forward and and it's almost like we've been here before. It says, Samuel saw Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed stands here. There's a kind of familiar ring to it. It says, uh, but the Lord said to Samuel, do not consider his appearance because I rejected him. Now it's interesting. What I think Samuel's thinking, well Saul was a fit, strong, athletic kind of guy but he was flawed in his heart. So what I need is a fit, strong, athletic kind of guy who's got a good heart. As if, no, I really want that. So so when he sees Eliab, he's thinking, well, this guy seems a good guy. He's strong, he's fit, athletic, and he's he's grown up in Jesse's family. Maybe he's got a good heart. Maybe he's the one. He could have said, Samuel saw Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed stands here. And then uh, God says, but do not consider his appearance or his height, because he rejected him. So Samuel could have thought, oh, well, it's not about looks then. What we need to choose is a really ugly person. Or somebody who's really weak. Somebody who's really pathetic. Somebody who looks like there's no way he could do it. Maybe maybe that's what it is. Because actually he's still saying, well, maybe it's this. Maybe it's strong with a good heart. Or oh, oh maybe, oh, if it's not about appearance, it must be weak then. But actually the whole point is it's not about what he looks like at all. So actually we hear later on that David's a good looking guy. But he's not chosen because he's good looking. Fillmore in his commentary says, we might assume that Samuel is looking for someone stronger than Saul, but without his insecurities. Alternatively, we might assume that uh, someone weaker than Saul, someone has more cause uh, than the tall, good-looking Saul to trust God. But God says it's not about appearances at all. Now that is really interesting, isn't it? Is there a slide there about appearances? Okay. It's a little test for you ladies. I I hope it's just the ladies. Which of these do you choose? Do you like the guy on the one on the left, who's a uh, pretty suave, isn't he? Pretty cool, pretty together, yeah? Or oh, 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 I, I shouldn't have chosen him, should I? But you know, I, I typed in "ugly man," and he came up. So those of you think, "Oh, what a shame," but yeah, yeah, mine—I didn't come up. Guys, I didn't come up. I came up on this side. I typed good looking man and I was there on the first page. <laughs> but it's interesting. I had a phone call this week from somebody who's um, he, he, hes on the staff of a, a large church in Surrey. And he was talking to me about being involved in the ministry team uh, at the festival summit in the summer West Point. And he talked to me. He sounded competent, clever, well thought through. I'm thinking, man, you should be leading this team, not me. You know, he said, oh, I've written, I've done quite a lot of work on kind of prayer ministry and, you know, involved in kind of demonic expulsion and healing the sick. And I'm thinking, oh, you're amazing. Ooh, that's pretty good. And then I, he says, oh, well, let's meet. And I'm at a thing next week. He said, let's meet. So I, he said, uh, I said, well, I, sorry, David, I don't know who you look like. He said, oh, I know what you look like. So immediately I thought, hmm, he knows what I look like. He knows who I am. I am I, obviously mini famous. And I said, David, I, I don't know what you look like. So he said, I'm the fat, hairy guy that looks like... And I thought, surely not. Surely, you're this highly intelligent, competent, anointed person. And, and I, for a moment I thought, he can't possibly lead the team. <laughs> And that's thought, how stupid. But that's, be honest, we do it. We do it. We judge by appearances. We judge by appearances. People come into this church and they go, not many here. Can't be very good. You don't have your own building. Can't be very good. Guys, you know, a bit old, grey, whatever. I don't know. People make their judgments, don't they? The worship band. Only two in the worship band. Where's the rock and roll light show? Whatever... So people make their judgments on appearances, and we do it all the time. Church in Manchester, lots of single people, lots of single guys and girls, they made judgments based on... So what they'd say, if this was a girl, I mean, you could flip it over. If it's, let's pretend he's a good-looking girl, good-looking, not-so-good-looking girl. You could say, oh, well, I really feel God's calling me to, um, to go out with this girl here. You know, she's attractive, all the bumps are in the right places, she's looking great. Um... I, and I did see her with a Bible once. I did see her with a Bible. Yeah, I'm not digging a hole. I just know. That's what people say to me. They just say that. They can, honestly, you, you do it. You can, there's brilliant, brilliant women, brilliant women who on the outside don't look great. And guess what? They struggle to find a guy. And there's women who look great on the outside and actually, they're all messed up on the inside and the guys are queuing up. And if you're telling me that I'm stepping over the line, you're not telling the truth to yourself. Because that's what it's like. And then, and we think, oh, I, I can't possibly date this person. She's a great spiritual woman of God. She loves Jesus. She's got God's heart. Ah, but what is it? About? Well, I just don't fancy her. And we're kidding ourselves. We look on the outside. But God says, no, no, no. It's not about you've got to marry someone ugly to prove you're spiritual. I must admit, I went out with a girl who wasn't very attractive when I first kind of encountered God because I thought, I've got to prove that it doesn't matter to me. I didn't tell her. That's why I went out with her. She was lovely on the inside. But I thought, how are you so shallow? The next girl I went, the next girl I went out with was a highly good looking kind of girl, messed up. And I'm thinking, you know, man, I've just come out of a messed up kind of walk with God where I lost it because of a beautiful girl. And I go back there again and think, whoa! So now, I've got both. (laughs) She's out on kids work. But, but it's funny. What I'm trying to say is, we judge by appearances. You, you get that. It works in relationships. American presidents, all at all. They are. No short, fat guy has ever been American president since the camera's been invented. Why? You're thinking, I'm really having a go. No, that's true. They won't vote. They will not vote for them. John McCain is going to struggle, even if you agree or disagree with him. I don't agree with him because he's a bit too right-wing for me. But the fact is, he's never going to make president because he's a bit... Too short and stubby. He is. Where's Barack Obama? He's got that. I mean, he's a great speaker and he's left of center, so I like him. But, you know, he's got that kind of whoa, hasn't he? Gravitas. And we look on the outside. How do we evaluate people? 1.2 billion is spent on cosmetics in this country every year. That's a huge amount. People starve. People cut. Services are being cut. You know, people's benefits are being cut. People are struggling. Whatever you feel about that, you know, the fact is that people poor in this country, the inequality gaps are bigger than ever was. 1.2 billion on cosmetics. We are obsessed with the outside. And you know why we are? Because we're scared of what's inside. It's if you look in a mirror, which you do when you shave. I think shaving, I mean, Geoffram's not shaved for a while now. He's not, he's, that beard is about 18 months without shaving. So if you think, man, how incredibly virile he is. <laughs> I've never been able to grow a beard. <laughs> yeah, sorry. What are we talking about? Yes. Um, and, and if you look, when you shave, it's funny, you look in the mirror and you, you look at yourself. Ladies, I'm sure you look in the mirrors and look at yourself at different moments. What do you think about yourself? Do you feel I'm attractive? I'm competent. I'm good looking. Therefore, people should love me. I know, being a school teacher, that the attractive, competent guys and girls expect the world to love them. They expect God to love them and the not-so-confident, and the not-so-attractive uh, guys and girls, the not-so-clever guys and girls, expect the world to hate them. And actually, I think it's hard to be good-looking because people judge you always by the outside. And it's hard not to be good-looking because people always judge by the outside. C.S. Lewis said, but if you look inside yourself, it's really scary. He wrote this. When I examined my heart with a seriously practical intent, in other words, he looked in the mirror of his heart, What I found there appalled me. I'm a zoo of lusts. I love his writing. A bedlam of ambition. Bedlam, 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 bedlam. A nursery of fears. Just in case you didn't know what bedlam meant, yeah? That was why I did that. It's like when you come to the Kellett's household and it's noisy and chaotic, and that's bedlam. All right? A nursery of fears. Where it's a kind of nice ground where fears grow. A harem of fondled hatreds. Ooh, he writes it so well. He said, inside, that's what I'm like. And so what happens is, Samuel gets one after another after another, and God says, no, I've rejected him. No, I've rejected him. No, I've rejected him. No, I've rejected him. if we brought you one after another, start with Matt White. Nice beard, Matt. Start up with Matt White. (laughs) And you say, whoa, has God chosen this one or not? You'd say yes, but you'd say no. But actually, the bottom line is, you'd all know. That you're not good enough. You'd all know that I could stand here and look good. But in this inside, I'm just like C.S. Lewis. I'm that kind of person on the inside. There's no one qualified. So when no one makes the cut, seven sons come and no one makes the cut. That is hardly surprising. Because what's he looking for? Somebody after God's heart. Nobody makes the cut. Oh, you think, yes, they do. David makes the cup. But actually, David writes, I don't know if it, where it is, he writes elsewhere, he says, there's no one good, not even one. His son writes the same thing. In Ecclesiastes, Solomon writes, there's no one righteous, no, not one. Paul writes in Romans, there's no one righteous, no one. No one. When, God, when you look on the heart, nobody qualified. Nobody's qualified. You're going to ask a question, Joseph? Ah, thank you. That is the tension I'm trying to create in this moment. And we must land it in the next ten. Whoa, pressure. You've understood the art of... Good. I told him if he doesn't listen, no Xbox for the week. Okay. So what's happened with David? There's something about David. David's forgotten. He's ignored He's insignificant. He's the youngest. The eldest have, have almost assumed that life has been a life of honour, a life of comfort, a life of, of being deferred to. But David is just does the most menial of jobs. He's the shepherd out there. But actually, that's not why God chose him. Actually, there's something in David that says it's not about him at all. It says this. Psalm 22. Great psalm. Talking about Jesus, but talking about... David, it says, you brought me safely from my mother's womb and led me to trust you at my mother's breast. I was thrust into your arms at birth. You have been my God from the moment I was born. Now in one sense you could say that's because Dave, God chose David when he was a tiny little baby. You know, we've got a stack of babies around Rose. You know, God chose Rose when she's a tiny baby. And you think, yeah, that's great. But actually, what he's doing, he's drawing it back even further. And saying, before I was even born, you chose me. That's what I believe that. Otherwise, you're based on your performance, your appearance, whether you can do it. God chose me before I was even born. Paul's... David's articulating there's a sense where he knows I'm not good. But he's also articulating that sense I've been chosen by God. And actually, that is true for all of us. Oh man, I'm a mess up. People knew what I was like inside wall. <laughs> you know, you just don't, I go and hide, of people, you know, whatever, you know, the insecurity of all the t- stuff that goes wrong. I can do so really well, you know that. But, but, but at the bottom line is, it's not because of that. Paul puts it like this in Ephesians. Praise, oh hallelujah, praise to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who chose us in Jesus before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in sight. But I'm not holy and blameless. But He is. Jesus is holy and blameless and we're in Him. In love He predestined us to be adopted as His sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with who? God's pleasure and will. Thank you. You just did it because you want to do it. He chose David because he wanted to. Because he wanted to. Because he wanted to. And you think that's not fair. But actually, it's not that it just chose David, it chose all of us. But actually, when God chooses a person, you need to cooperate with what's going on. I'll land it now. I am landing. You've got to cooperate with what, what, what God wants to do with you. So the first thing that God teaches is by giving David the, the worst situation. In our world, we think if I've got the best situation, if my life is in the right shape, if everything's, if all my ducks in a row, whatever that means, you know, that, that if everything's looking good, then that means God's favours on me. David is. Disregarded. In fact, when he comes, we'll see next week when he, David and Goliath. When he comes to fight Goliath, his brother, his eldest brother, says, "Just get lost. Go back to the stupid sheep. Few and uh, not many of them." That when David fights Goliath, he says, "Well, what qualifies you?" He Says, "Well, when, when a lion and a bear came, man, I was there, fighting for the sheep." God's teaching him. It's not about you, David. You lay down your life for the sheep. Jesus does that. It's so about you, Jesus. You're laying down your life for the sheep. that You might take it up again. He catches up with him. There's something else about David that God just buzzes with excitement about. And it's in Psalm 132. The thing about David is we have the insight into his life because he wrote lots of Psalms. Now, interestingly, this Psalm is not written by him. It's written by somebody I think who knew him. And David has talked about what it was like for him as a kid. What was it like for him when when no one knew his name and his dad didn't even bother to invite him and, and he was disregarded and he was suffering and he was what was really buzzing about, and I love this psalm, so it's not by David, it's about David. It says David swore a mighty oath to God. He's putting his hand on his heart and said, This is what matters to me. I made a vow to the mighty one of Jacob. I will not go home. He's obviously out in the fields. That's where he sleeps. I will not let myself rest. You can hear Isaiah, can't you? I give myself no rest. Give Jerusalem no rest. It says, I will not myself rest. I will not ma- let my eyes sleep, nor close my eyelids in slumber, until... What do we put in there? What do we put in there? Come back to that. Until I find a place to build a house for the Lord, a sanctuary for the Lord, the Almighty One of Israel. And they, and as I dug into that this week, says, it says, when I heard that the ark was in Bethlehem, remember we said it was in the Temple of Dagon, and they said we can't get rid of it, and they send it away to this place that nobody quite knows where it is. But the suggestion in this psalm is it's quite near Bethlehem. In Bethlehem of Then we found it in the distant countryside of Jar. And he said, let us go to his dwelling place. Let us worship at the footstool of his throne. What keeps you awake at night? What's your passion? Is it your appearance? Your pleasure? My life's so miserable. My comfort, myself is a broken. Sofas have replaced TV in our house now as the wanted desire item. My comfort. My money. My status. My ambitions. My stupid football team. My relationships or lack of them. What do you lie awake at night about and think and worry about? What vexes you and you think, man, I need to get that sorted. I'm not going to sleep until I get that sorted. I need to do those reports. I, you know, I need to get the year 12 through the exam. I don't know what, what, what's in your head. But what keeps David awake at night is, I want God's stuff. Saul never sought God. His religion was a sham. His sacrifices and prayers were, net, were for the people. His passion was for his own name and God rejected him. Yet God crafted a man out of his own heart who was lying awake at night, searching the hills around his, his home to be in God's presence. He's saying, where is that ark? I know it's here. It's round Jerusalem somewhere. Let's go. He says to his, I don't know, to the other shepherds, let's go. I want to be there. I want to build a, I want to build a big massive temple for this ark for God. I don't want it to be in somebody's garage. Saul never once goes and gets the ark of God. But David is lying awake as a young kid, 15, 16, 17, saying, this is what really matters to me. It's not the in that latest Xbox game that's coming out. He's saying the church of God, the people of God, he writes this, I'm really done now guys, he writes this. Psalm 69, D- David says, zeal for your house eats me up. It's not eating me up. My, my, my status, my reputation's eating me up. Weak sins are eating me. Struggles in my relationships, they me up. But when I read about David, I think, no, deep down in here, there's something that eats me up. God, I want your church built. I want your church built. I want your church built. It saddens me that people think I can have God. I can be after God's heart and not care. About his church. It says about Jesus, doesn't it? What does it say? Zeal for your house burns me up. Jesus went to the cross to build a temple. I prayed it this morning. It fitted with the song and I didn't, you know. But, but, but Jesus prayed that Jesus laid down his life for his church. It says, Jesus loved the church and gave himself well. he, 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 the, the Building the church was Jesus' passion. I'm going to build my church. And it burned him up. Burn him up. And God loved him for it. And God loved David for it. Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day, the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully on David. Pentecost, isn't it? Pentecost is not just about you just get some like download of power to play with. God looks at our hearts and just wants that passion and he's, he's kindling it. In fact, that Simon Ponceby spoke last night at, at the racecourse from Romans twelve, eleven. It says, Never be lacking in zeal, but in the spirit, on fire, serving the Lord. That's David. And David's gonna. We're gonna find David messes up worse than Saul in many ways. But there was this was the root of him that God put in him. I am passionate for you, and God filled him with His Spirit. Why do you stand with me, people? Spirit of God, we pray that you'd come and take your anointing oil and anoint us. As I was praying in the week, I just felt, and I said it at the prayer meeting, that I feel like, God first, it's as individuals, but also as a community, God's about to bring us and stand us in the midst of our brothers, the other churches that we love and that we have got relationship and that we cheer on. And it's not that God's rejected them, that's not what I'm saying. But I think God's asking us the what's in your heart question. Is a passion. Passion for the Lord's name. Passion for the for God's church. Passion for God's kingdom. Passion for the things He's passionate about. The, zeal for your house that consumes us zeal for your house that makes us take up the cross and lay down our lives and our comforts and all those things that keep us awake at night and say now I'm going to die with Christ and live for him I believe that this is a a moment for us to check our hearts and you know that you're like C.S. Lewis but also you're like David Before you were born, He chose you. Before you'd done anything right and wrong that could qualify you. Before you had a good-looking or not-so-good-looking face. Before you'd achieved anything or not achieved anything. God put His call out for you. Now He wants to put His passion in you. He wants to make you strong so you can kill lions and bears so you can win great victories for God, as we'll see next week. Lord Jesus, we pray that when we're brought before our brothers, your anointed rest on us, your spirit rest on us, because it's said of them, they're passionate for Jesus, passionate for his gospel, passionate for his church. So we just pray, Lord Jesus, now, but you would, I'm not going to ask anyone to respond, I'm just going to say, God, would you pour your spirit on us? Just pour your spirit on us, oh God. Just anoint us. Where we feel, oh man, I'm no good. Just anoint us. Where we feel I'm fine without you, God, just come and strip that down and anoint us. We pray, Holy Spirit, this Pentecost, come and pour your Spirit on us. Seal that passion for your church, your kingdom.